0: Hi, Colleen. Thank you so much for being on the podcast this morning. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So uh, let's dive into the conversation. I want to start um, by having you explain more about what the biopsychosocial model is. So that's how you started your whole story, um, saying that that's you're a proponent of that or that's, if that's what you believe in in terms of... Um, the way that you developed an eating disorder or just the ways that other people do. So can you speak more about what that actually is?
1: Sure. Um, So the biopsychosocial model is really um, a theory about the development of different mental illness. It can also be applied to physical medical illnesses. And it's really saying that um, in terms of what causes, for example, an eating disorder there's a biological basis or foundation, which is your genetic makeup. So that's not changing. That is, your, that is what you're born with, your DNA. Um, and certain genetic makeups make people more prone to certain mental health issues than others. And then there's the psychological aspect. So that's more people's personality. And again, that is influenced by environment, but that is also, it tends to be pretty static and doesn't change. So your psychological makeup could be, um, you know, are you more introverted? Are you more extroverted? Do you tend to be more um, easygoing? Do you tend to be more type A? So it's just everything about your personality. And then the um, social is really environment. So what like pieces of the environment kind of come together to, they say in that genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. So what parts of the environment pulled the trigger for that genetic underpinning mixed with your personality to then sort of, I always think of it as um, we all, like if you have a predisposition to an eating disorder, then you have an eating disorder egg in you. And you're, as your personality develops, maybe it knocks on that egg a little bit. And then as these different environmental hits happen, they keep knocking on the egg. And at some point the egg's gonna crack, right? So it's just a way of conceptualizing how that egg cracks into the eating disorder and kind of how it came about to be.
0: Okay. So it's like, um, the bio part is if you have a family history potentially, or like you were saying, just like the genetics of it, and then the psychology part is your personality. So you were speaking in your story about just that you were more of a type A child, that you were more introverted, that you were shy. Um, and these personality traits may be some that potentially predispose someone to an eating disorder. Um, are there any other personality traits that you've learned about that might also predispose somebody?
1: Yeah, so they say that in terms of personality traits, they can. there's some research that separates personality traits into what eating disorder they predispose you to, which I'm not sure how much i buy because i think i mean just so individualized and there's right. no one stereotypical eating disorder like i said but um there's some research that says like i said introversion um, perfectionism that whole type a mentality and also just being more guarded in general and independent and driven achievement oriented that that constellation of personality traits can lend itself to the development of an eating disorder, but then also on the flip side, being more of an impulsive person, being kind of like an adrenaline seeker, um, being a person who feels emotions really strongly and emotes, uh, maybe struggles just with emotion regulation in general, um, that has also been shown to predispose people to eating disorders. So it's there's no, there's definitely no one set of symptoms that you can say, well, this causes like anorexia, for example, or this personality will, that person will go on to develop um, binging disorder or bulimia, but there's def- there's some symptoms in general that I, or there's some personality traits in general that predispose people.
0: Right. And then like you were saying, just because you have those personality traits doesn't really mean anything. because. At- especially according to the biocycle social model, like your DNA and then also the environment in which you live, whether that means like your family environment or just the larger cultural environment that you're growing up in, like all of those also could potentially contribute to the development of an eating disorder.
1: Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Which is why I always say there's never, I've never met a person who can say, who's been able to say, well, this is the one reason my eating disorder developed. It's right here. Like I've got reason it's kind of it has to be the perfect storm of Mm -hmm. all you know the genetic predisposition the environmental hits the personality constellation of traits and it all just comes together
0: yeah and that's why I love that you just described the biopsychosocial model because I've heard a lot of people even the people that I've interviewed a lot of them say it was just the perfect storm and I like to have a little bit of a framework around okay what is that actually like what are the different ingredients of the perfect storm um Mm -hmm. and what I what I love about the way that you just described the personality traits is that I think sometimes what happens is people hear like, well, well I'm introverted and I'm type A. And so it, it becomes like, a, uh, you can't see me making air quotes, but it becomes like, <laughs> they're like negative emotions and like, mm-hmm. if those are your personality traits. And because they are relatively static, I'm doomed and I'm just going to ha- be sick forever. But there is also light sides to all of these personality traits. And so you also describe them as like achievement oriented. And I guess in what ways do you see some of the personality traits that you just mentioned also be, like you said in your story, you were able to take them and gear them into having like a successful recovery rather than keeping you sick. So in what ways can people maybe re-harness these personality traits that they have and use them, whether it's in recovery or just you know, living a life that they're enjoying? Or maybe how did you do it if you can't speak to everybody?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I love that, that, that idea that our, all of our personality traits kind of have the light side and the dark side. And I always, I always like to talk about that with people because oftentimes I will, like with people that I'm working with, will focus on the biopsychosocial model and their biopsychosocial model will you know, dive really deeply into. And then people can start kind of start to feel like when they look at it all, well, like, like you said, I'm doomed. Like I'm just this type A, super introverted, um, maybe like very, very driven person, really competitive. This is just going to be um, me for the rest of my life, which is so true. Like you really can't change your personality. But on the flip side, it's kind of like what is the personality traits that are your Achilles heels, on the flip side, they're always your greatest traits as well. Mm -hmm. So they're your greatest weaknesses and greatest strengths, like all rolled into one. Uh, And in terms of, I actually used to run groups when I worked on an inpatient eating disorders unit where I would have, because I just felt that this was such a powerful concept. I would have all the members list out the personality traits that they felt predisposed them to an eating disorder. We'd make like a huge list. And then, we cognitively reframe them, each and every one, to how it's helpful in that person's life or how it could be helpful given um, the ability to channel it correctly. Mm -hmm. So, and I was like a pro at taking the things that people were, you know, said were their darkest traits and things that had no good side and finding a way to shine the light on them. Mm -hmm. I just think it's so true.
0: Yeah, Um, and it's so easy when you're in the really the thick and the bottom of your eating disorder to feel so hopeless around those things, especially like, if you're like, well, I'm introverted in type A, and I have a family history of eating disorders. And I live in a, a culture of like a thin obsessed diet culture, like, of course, mm-hmm. I'm always going to have an eating disorder. Um, right. And I think that you know, I, I do eating disorder coaching and with my clients, I have to do perspective shifts a lot, not just around their personality traits, but just around a lot of things um, and being able to shift like, okay, I'm an introverted type A type person and driven and success oriented and or achievement oriented. And these are all the ways that's actually going to help me be successful in a career one day, right? Or um, like you said, help me in my in my recovery,
1: Right. And I mean, I do think, I think it's important to validate, like, you're not crazy for feeling this way, for having this eating disorder first of all, You're not crazy. You're responding to this, you know, the biopsychosocial model Mm -hmm. of your own. Um, But you're also not crazy if you feel like sort of down about some of these personality traits, because I do think culturally we tend to embrace... Um, for example, we tend to embrace, I believe, extroverts a little bit more than introverts. Mm-hmm. And so it can be really easy to get down on yourself and, and start to think that you just, this is a negative part of you and if you could just change it and be different. Things would get better. Um, but I, like you said, I think they can, I mean, there's always the flip side. A lot of times introversion, the flip side of it leading to isolation is it leads you to be you know, a deep, somebody that listens well, perhaps like a good therapist mm-hmm. <laughs> or a life coach um, because you, you're you a listener and you can probably empathize. And in terms of the type A, yeah, perfectionism can really get in the way of leading a fulfilling life, but it can also lead you to be successful at work and at school and things like that. And even, you know, impulsivity.
0: Mm-hmm. Like I was just going to say that because that's, that's one that gets like a really bad reputation in society i think
1: yeah and it's and it's and it can just like perfectionism or um being super harm avoidant impulsivity can really obviously get in the way of and can cause negative things in people's lives but if you can learn to channel it then it's sort of it can that's also probably a person who gets things done and can make decisions Mm -hmm. quickly and also it probably lends itself to just being a passionate human being in general. Right. Passion for life is
0: hugely important, you know? Yeah. I actually just posted, maybe it was yesterday on Instagram, these like funny things. It was like something like 15 plus ways to kill an introvert. And it was just like, it was hilarious things. Um, And it, I'm, if you looked in a dictionary, like I would be the definition of an introvert and it was only until like very, very recently, like probably within the last year that I was just like, you know what, this is just who who I am and Mm -hmm. I'm not going to try to force myself to be a different way because that was harming me more than helping me Um, and it's made my life significantly easier to just accept the fact that like I need a lot of solo time and I Don't like loud, bright places. Like I like two best friends on a couch watching television, and that's like my dream. Um, And being, what'd you say? I
1: so relate.
0: Yeah, I was actually joking with my friend last night because one of her best friends is engaged, and we were talking about bachelorette parties. And I was like, "My bachelorette party is going to be sitting on your couch, drinking ginger ale, and watching TLC." And she was (laughs) like, "I know that is going to be your bachelorette party," Um, but the idea of just being able to look at what your personality traits are and accept the lightness of the, and honestly success, accept the shadow sides of those too. I also know that I could potentially not leave my house for five days. If sometimes I don't force myself to, because I'm such a homebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but being able to hundred percent, just accept mm-hmm. that this is who I am. And rather than forcing myself to change and be miserable for it, being able to accept it and actually like relish and enjoy and do things that are better for me. Mm -hmm. Um, has made my life better. And it's also made my relationships better because now I'm not forcing myself to go do things that I don't want to do and then be miserable the whole time I'm there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And the other thing I learned, I guess a few years ago is just that like people often link extroversion with being outgoing and introversion with being shy, which there definitely is more of a correlation, but it, the terms are actually more about how it is that you recharge than anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think of it as um, it really boils down to people who feel like being around a lot of people drains them of energy. And maybe that can be people who love being around a lot of people, but at the end of the day, it does drain their energy Mm -hmm. versus people who acquire energy from other people. So that's like, my husband is a traditional (laughs) um, extrovert and he will like light up at parties and come home really invigorated and like wanting to just talk and I can have fun at parties and definitely can talk. But I, when I leave, I'm like, whew, that was it for the night. Like we're not talking at all. I just got to kind of recharge the battery. Um, So, and I also think it's about living in the gray area of Mm -hmm. the light and dark sides of that, of your traits, because, um, Like you said, I'm an introvert as well, and I can easily fall into isolating and not, uh, and that's not great for me if I do that too long. But um, it also, again, it makes me like a great listener and super empathetic and everything. So living in the gray area of sometimes having to push myself to be a little bit more uncomfortable and sit in the discomfort, uh, kind of pushing against that personality trait, like go to social gatherings and, you know, doing public speaking and things like that, just pushing myself in little ways. Um, but then also learning to embrace it as well and mm-hmm. bad for being this way. This is just me.
0: Yeah. I, one thing I, I truly believe in and I, I work with a lot of my clients on this is just reframing the idea of health as balance. And like, when you think about what, if we just stay with personality traits, it's like, like begets like. So if you do too much of what you're naturally inclined to it, could be harmful. So as an introvert, if I'd like to be home, but I stay home all the time, I could become very lonely, Mm
1: -hmm. um,
0: which isn't good for me. So the way that you balance that out is by sometimes having to push myself to be like, all right, I'm just going to, even though I'd I'd rather stay home right now, it's going to be good for me to go spend a few hours with some of my good friends at a party somewhere. Um, and I, and I think finding that balance is really important. Like you said, it's the gray area. It's not like you're only ever going to live on the light side. It's not like you're only ever going to live on the shadow side, but there's many, many degrees in between that, um, where life actually happens.
1: Right. And uh, yeah, I have a friend who's a real extrovert that says almost the exact same thing, but flipped. Like she'll say that she knows that she will, um, say yes to every social function and just like book herself, book, book, book up. And do everything, and she has to kind of, um, at some point, like taper that and say, "I actually need some time to sit with myself and mm-hmm. be alone and actually like reflect." Um, so that's it's yeah, it's interesting how we all, it's totally different, but at the end of the day, a really similar balancing act and a really similar gray area
0: search. Mm-hmm. Um, let's. I guess it's kind of similar to this, but it's also slightly different. But one thing you said in your story was that you became well-versed in emotions once you started really committing to recovery when you were in your graduate studies. Um, And one thing that I remember for myself, and I also know just based on clients that I work with, that the eating disorder, and it doesn't matter which eating disorder it is, which type, which symptoms, but oftentimes they are used as a way to numb outside or not outside emotions, but numb emotions. And so whether that means, you know, it's just that focus becomes solely on food and body and weight that there's no room to feel anything else other than ways about food and body and your weight. And um, as people start to move through recovery and they stop using the things that helped them numb out, emotions start to come in, which then could either make the urge to use a symptom stronger because now you're like really feeling things or just like feeling really crappy for a while um, and helping people kind of also start to become well-versed in emotions. Do you have any insight or words of wisdom for people that are in this in-between area of recovery where they're not really using symptoms as much anymore, but they're now also feeling things really strongly and um, how to navigate that.
1: Yes. So this is a, I just love this topic and I'm, yeah, I have so much to say on this. So I think that learning about, I, I just think in terms of emotions and emotional numbing, it's very, very helpful to think about the fact that eating disorder behaviors eating disorders in general are so good at numbing you know, negative emotions. I mean, the you know, the other side of that is that you really can't numb out negative emotions without eventually starting to numb out the positive. So that's not a way to live life. But I really do think it's helpful to think about it in the, in the sense that that's a function, a real function of your eating disorder, right? So it's very, it was very helpful to you at this point in your life, at this specific point when something felt overwhelming or you just didn't have the tools to deal with Um, some, you know, some sort of emotions or, or specific situations that your eating disorder really helped to numb, which is an important function. It's just not helpful long-term, right? Because we can't continue our life numbing out emotions and not sitting with them. Or Eventually we get to, like I kind of said, sitting in this like cold, sterile, certain environment without any color in life, Um, so I do think that eating disorder behaviors are fantastic numbing mechanisms, but that's not helpful. And I always say, you know, when you try to replace that, when you're looking for ways to deal with emotions later on, when you when you start to actually stop using behaviors, please know that nothing's going to work as well as an eating disorder behavior. And that's because nothing should. Like Mm. we are not meant to be numbing out emotions completely like that. Like nothing should work that well because we're supposed to be, or what's best is living in the gray area where we, you know, sometimes have to use distraction and, and tools and stuff. And then sometimes we are meant to learn to sit with emotions and learn from them and use them as data. So in terms of when you're, starting recovery or when you're moving forward in recovery, I'll always say that it's kind of like if the eating disorder was you, you were in a blizzard for a while, like super cold, super, super numb. And then when you start recovery, it's kind of like you're stepping inside, but it's like frostbite. Like it's going to hurt more as it thaws, but you're certainly not going to get through the frostbite by running back into the blizzard and numbing out again. So it's sort of understanding that process and being aware of that and reminding yourself when you're feeling these really difficult things, like, wow, I'm going through the frostbite at this time, and I really want to run back into that blizzard, but I know, I know in my heart of hearts that that's not actually going to get me through the frostbite. It's probably going to take even longer to thaw once I get, once I decide to come back in. Um, And just remembering, something that was helpful for me when I finally started listening to my therapists versus being like an asshole to my therapists, um, I found it super helpful to learn about the function of emotions that they all were supposed to have them all like they evolved for a reason. So we have anger because it's kind of like a warning signal to us that someone, you know, didn't treat us right or that something kind of wrong is happening and that we need to address it. And sadness really indicates that there was maybe a loss of something or that um, it can also like be the flip side of love and things like that. Grieving. That's all very important. So we, we need them and no emotion is wrong. Like no emotion is incorrect. So learning to use them as data for yourself and information. And then also just, I think it takes real lived experience of watching emotions crest and fall, which they always do because that's the way of emotions. They will, pressed on their own and fall eventually. And I think it takes that lived experience, kind of forcing yourself to sit with it and watch it happen to really show yourself that that is the way of emotions and then build that trust that that will continue to happen in the future. And to this day, I remind myself, you know, all the time, like this will pass, you know, what I'm very upset right now. And then I'll kind of go through in my head, well, this, this, and this happened, so that's leading me to feel this way. I know it will pass. Like, I feel this way, and I know it will pass. Um, yeah, because that's the way of emotions. Mm-hmm. Like, they all pass.
0: Yeah, and I think that, like you said, it's it takes lived experience, because I think the Belief of someone who hasn't had that is like this sadness is never going to end. This loneliness is never going to end. I'm going to get angry and then get even more angry and more angry, and I don't know what I'll do. And it's this ability to live it and to write it out and see that every time you come back to like state, like you come back to homeostasis, like you come back to like, oh, okay, everything's fine again. Um, right. But before you're able to do that. The only way that you have to trust that that'll happen is just that people are telling you that'll happen. Um, and oftentimes what happens is like we use symptoms because we don't trust that we'll be able to get to that point. And we know that those symptoms will get us to that point real fast, even if it's almost a facade, like it's kind of fakely getting you to that point until the emotions come up again. Um, yeah.
1: And I definitely think that that is why recovery in general, I think it's involves a huge leap of faith First that like, you know, it is better on the other side of this eating disorder that you can get better. So I'll listen to all these people who are saying that I'll take the leap of faith, even if I don't personally believe that or see it that way. And then it takes all these smaller leaps of faith, like, Mm -hmm. okay, that emotions will pass that I won't have to actually use the behavior. Like I have to trust this person or this idea and, um, sit with it or like leap of faith that I will be able to you know eat that food and work through the consequential emotion mm-hmm. so It's just a series of yeah constant leaps of faith
0: right and it's scary and like the reason why people like you and I was like this too are just like, nasty to their treatment team sometimes is because they're so defensive of this thing that they know is protecting them Mm -hmm. that it's scary to have to take that off and be like, all right, I'm going to trust you to guide me through this because for me, it's such a leap of faith.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's, and it it is, it takes being vulnerable and being vulnerable is always scary. It's terrifying. It's meant to be like, that, that is the nature of vulnerability. It's really good for us. Um, and it is, yeah, recovery in general is getting vulnerable and learning to take the shell off or kind of when, a
0: There's a woman in my life named Kobe, who's like my main mentor and teacher, and it, it had nothing to do with recovery. It had to do after recovery where I started to work with her. And she talks about how so many people... Even if, even if you like think you're numbing out, you've let a lot of emotions in and then you're like filled with all of these emotions and then you've got to numb because you don't want to feel how much emotions you've got inside of you Mm -hmm. because a lot of us are so good at letting them in, but then we don't let them back out. And so she always talks about like letting the emotions flow through you. Like they come in, but then they also have to flow back out. Otherwise you do become, there's just like a storm that's happening inside of you and it's like a pressure cooker.
1: Right. And they don't go away. Like they they just like go away if you keep them all inside and kind of compartmentalize and pack down and never address them. Like it's, it does take that sitting with them. It's almost like doing the thing that you most are, like you're most afraid of is the way to freedom and to being able to live the life that you want. Like just moving forward with, yeah, letting the emotions flow through you, Mm -hmm. actually feeling all the things that you are just so terrified
0: to feel it's that is key she um my my teacher also talks about how she did this um like a coal walking thing once like where there's a lot of hot coals and you've ever seen people people like that follow tony robbins i think Mm -hmm. he always does this where it's a lot of hot coals and you've got to go from one side to the other without burning your feet um Mm -hmm. And that the only way to actually get across is just you just have to keep going. That the moment you stop is when the burning starts um, and when you turn back. And it's kind of like it reminds me of what you were saying with the blizzard of like if you are experiencing frostbite and you just keep going back, you're just living a life of either being in a blizzard or experiencing frostbite. Like you're never giving yourself the opportunity to get to the other side. And like you said, it's trusting that the other side actually feels better than the blizzard and frostbite both do, but you've got to just keep, you just have to keep going, knowing that in the beginning, it's not going to be comfortable.
1: Right. And I think that's sort of why, that's my theory as to why symptom substitution is such a big um, issue when you're going through an eating disorder, because if you're not working through it and actually walking through the cold, if you're just, um, like, if you're getting stuck and not actually doing the work, it's it kind of comes out sideways. Like it'll still, they're still there, so it'll still go somewhere. So it'll come out in a different way maybe than using food or weight, but mm. it, you know, it will come out somewhere.
0: Yeah, and I saw that a lot both when I was in treatment and also for a while I was a, a psychology major in school and I had to do an internship at a drug and alcohol place. And like a lot of the people there suddenly started doing things with their food that they had never done because they weren't using drugs and alcohol anymore. Mm -hmm. So like you said, it starts to leak out into other areas until it's actually processed, dealt with and like released Um, Mm -hmm. because it doesn't, it doesn't just go away. It doesn't like evaporate. It it stays there until it's got to go somewhere. Right.
1: And I mean, sometimes processing because I found myself thinking when I was going through it, like, well, what do you mean? Like, processing. What do you mean releasing? What does that mean? Give me depths. And sometimes it really just means, I mean, that is what we have in terms of research. We have very little research as to why therapy actually works. The best reason we come back to the biggest um, statistical piece of information is that a relationship with another human being where you can come in and verbalize all these things and Mm -hmm. put them in the room and get them out of you and have another human being listen and respond. There's something like innately healing about that
0: for us. And and I think it's also why journaling can be so successful too, right? It's just a matter. It's a way to get it out. Obviously, you don't have the relationship aspect of it that you would with a therapeutic relationship, but just a way to get what's inside of you, outside of you in in some form or manner.
1: Right. Yeah, just get it out get it out of yourself, put it on paper, put it into the room with another person. But as long as you're, I mean, that's why processing isn't actually like a, it's not, it doesn't mean something mysterious and shrouded. It really is just finding a way to get it out because you were, you know, a lot of times like eating disorders, symptoms and behaviors are, they are getting out an emotion in a certain way or trying to get at that but um, it's just ineffective. You actually have to really just do this simple thing that's also so hard of right. verbalizing it or putting it on paper.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember too when I was in treatment, like for a while I didn't feel like I had the words, like I would just sit in therapy and I'd just be silent because I had nothing to say, but for me drawing helped so much in the beginning mm-hmm. before I felt like I had the words because I didn't even have the words to put them on paper, but I had the images. Um, until I started to be able to formulate the words and then have actual dialogue with people and, and verbalize them and, and process them in that way. Um, but getting them out in whatever form that looks like, that's, like you said, a lot of eating disorder symptoms are ways of you getting them out. They're just not functioning in a way that's going to let you thrive and like live the life that, I guess, one would think that recovery could bring.
1: Right. And the, the drawing thing is an amazing idea. And I've, every time I use that with somebody, because often, yeah, people often don't have, words fail us often. There's just not words for the experience um, sometimes. So when I have people draw like a, like even just um, a, like an artistic representation of their eating disorder as it applies to them. I I mean, I just get chills when I see these drawings because they're always so like they, you know, oftentimes they do just say so much more than words ever could. Mm -hmm. So that's a fantastic idea.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I was doing an exercise once as part of a group that I was in where they had someone like she played music and then there was like one person that, Moved or danced like what their like their whole history, but they weren't allowed to speak. So it was all about speaking it through the way that you were moving. And then there was one person that was like creating a drawing of what they were witnessing. This person moving as, and then there was another person that was just simply the witness. And it was such a powerful experience to first actually use my body to express everything that I had been going through, but then also to be witnessed by two people. One person who was creating a piece of artwork just based on what she was witnessing by me moving through the experiences that I was having. So I just think that there's so much, so there are so many ways. And like you said, simple but not simple ways of being able to get this stuff out of you. That doesn't always mean um, it. If you don't have the words, there's other ways of doing it too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's why experiential, Therapy techniques, like exactly what you're talking about. I consider that essential, like an essential part of the therapeutic process at, at some point going to when words fail us, like trying, you know, something else, because they say that communication is, isn't it something like 97% nonverbal anyway? Like we are not meant to like get our only communicate through words yeah I mean
0: between body language and just like even just like vocal inflection you're saying so much by either the way that you say it or the way that your body is when you say it that the words don't mean a ton because the words a lot of times especially like in terms of emotions they're just labels that someone slapped onto a feeling but what's more important is actually expressing the feeling even if there's not a word that you feel like is appropriate to do it
1: Right. And even you said body, body language, that makes me think of uh, sometimes I'll ask people to notice their body in the room and how much space they're taking up. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, there are no words necessary to when you kind of like come to the realization, wow, I'm scrunching my, when I would sit in the room, I remember just scrunching myself up to be like as invisible as possible you know like i had my legs up to my chin a lot of times or i would like sort of wrap my legs repeatedly around each other like get them really twisty and just get all scrunched up um so i do think that yeah body language and sitting with that and sort of learning to understand it that's all it's huge
0: there's and there's also ways of being able to change the way you're feeling just by changing your physiology So um, like I have someone, um, a friend of mine who just started a new job that she's really, she's having a hard time with. And so she even mentioned like she notices herself sitting like with her shoulders slouched over and like also getting smaller. And we were talking about how um, one day at work, I challenged her to just sit really tall, even if she felt like slouching. And she even said like physiologically she felt emotionally different inside because she was sitting in a way that represented someone that was like like open and proud rather than like slouched over and scared.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's the I mean that whole DBT technique of the half smile.
0: Right. I was just thinking that too. Like you whenever you half smile, it's like there are actual neurological changes that happen.
1: Yeah, your brain gets information. Like, okay, we're actually okay. <laughs> we're right. actually feeling a little bit better. And mm-hmm. it, it, yeah, it's it's research proven that it does help.
0: Yeah. Um. Going along this idea of just like ways of helping, um, you had mentioned, um, when you were in graduate school that there were when you started to really commit to recovery there were certain resources that you had used. Um, or read or whatever that helped you with that and and whether you remember exactly what those were or not um I'm wondering if you have any resources that you suggest for people that are listening that are are looking for books to read or things to listen to um, or things to watch that might be helpful in their recovery or in supporting what they're doing or where they are in their recovery
1: yeah, well, I mean for me, it was it was prior to the days of when there was this really strong online presence of a recovery community. So I think I've here, I've heard that that's helpful to people now, just that online, like on Instagram and Tumblr, the recovery community, I found, more blog type resources to be helpful, like Project Heals blog, I think is where I got that idea that or I think listening to the, the two founders stories of using their struggle as their inspiration and you know finding higher purpose in your life and everything. I think that that was what inspired me to think, well, there could be higher apples on the tree than just weight food. and food. Let me see if I can start reaching for those, which was, essential, like I said, to my recovery process. Um, I also leaned on Recovery Warriors, I believe. I think they had a blog. I know they had one now, but I,
0: I think when I was going through it, I book- think she has a podcast now too.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if listen, and that's, yeah, I think that's a great resource. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't around when I was recovering, but Food Psych is a mm-hmm. podcast. It's also an amazing resource. I found the book Life Without Ed, super helpful. Um, I found, I also used, when I was farther along, there's a cookbook called food to eat that is, was created by an eating disorders dietitian and somebody going through recovery. So it, it provides like really nourishing recipes and then also like almost dialogue against any eating disorder thoughts that might come up like in there, um, in the actual cookbook. Mm-hmm. I think that was awesome. I found that helpful. Um, yeah, there's so many different resources now, though, and so many books. I always recommend Carolyn Coston's Eight Keys to Recovery, mm-hmm. the workbook and the book, just because I think that's an amazing resource as well.
0: Yeah, I agree with all of the ones that you named. I think I also, I'm trying to remember the other ones that I read when I was in recovery that I liked. I liked uh, Eating in the Light of the Moon hmm I thought that was a good one and I'm just someone I think in images so like archetypes and like story and things like that help me it's just the way that I process things so that's one of the reasons why I really liked that book um and then I also liked the book appetites yeah, um that was a great one and I'll I'll put links to all of these in the in the notes but when I was in recovery too I or when I was like really actively in recovery I don't like Instagram wasn't even created yet. I'm pretty sure that didn't exist. So, mm-hmm. um, but now there is Instagram and there are things like that. And, and, you know, I actually think, do you post something this morning that was just like, you, I think you shared something this morning that was countering common things. And it was, you said something about like cleaning up your social media feed or something like that. And it didn't you? Yeah. Was that this morning,
1: but yeah. Cause I think that, um, yeah, really sitting with yourself and getting honest about what's helpful versus what is maybe just keeping one foot in the eating disorder, because even some of the online, like quote unquote recovery resources can be triggering most likely to, depending on where you are in your process. So I think getting honest with yourself and unfollowing obviously like Bitspo accounts and things that are just blatantly unhelpful but also any recovery accounts that you're not finding you're finding more harmful than helpful and um, in terms of other resources like getting honest with yourself I always I recommend I really recommend not reading eating disorder memoirs Mm -hmm. when you're going through recovery so if you're doing that kind of getting honest with yourself is this helpful or is this me just sort of Finding a way to keep one foot in the eating disorder by like right. sort of reveling in this misery, if that mm-hmm. makes sense.
0: Definitely, and I think it's interesting. Social media has now made it so interesting, and like there are there are so many accounts that I look at on Instagram that I'm like, this these are awesome, like this such positive messages. I love what they're saying, um, but then there's also accounts that are claiming to be recovery accounts that I look at that I even unfollow I'm, and it's not that it affects me in a way that makes me want to use an eating disorder symptoms That I'm just like this doesn't need to be in my field um mm-hmm. and I think that there I remember when I was like newly in recovery just like being fascinated by other people's eating disorders but that that wasn't actually helping me at all so like you're saying the whole memoir thing of just really taking responsibility for what you're allowing into your field and getting honest with yourself about what's not actually serving my recovery is it serving my eating disorder or my recovery right
1: and it's kind of it does get complicated in terms of which of these accounts are it's individualized what's totally mm-hmm. I, I struggle to um, like recommend accounts most of the time because even the really big you know body positive or recovery based accounts oftentimes, there will be like like some random posts here and there that I think I, you know, can see how that would be really unlike, like, you know, before and after pictures, I personally feel very strongly that that is not helpful. I know. I agree with you. Yeah. It's just an unhelpful, um, perhaps it's helpful to the person, but I question that most of the time and it's unhelpful to this, you know, society in general. And if you're putting it out there in a public way, you have to think about, well, what does that perpetuate? Um, And if you're viewing it, like what is that, you know, stirring up in me and is that helpful to me or is it actually just sort of, again, keeping one foot in the eating disorder or kind of bringing yourself to that place?
0: And like you said, it's an individual thing. You know, I noticed the other day I was just like looking through random like recovery hashtags and how like every single recovery hashtag is just plates of food. And I almost like wanted to write Instagram and be like, there are other people like putting recovery hashtags out that are showing just like what amazing lives they are living now. And they're like on vacation and they're having fun with people and there's all of these other things. But when they like choose their top posts, like I don't know what the algorithm is, but I just want to be like, just like you said, like before and after pictures, I understand that there's a large accountability piece. I think a lot of people use their Instagram as an accountability thing, but the benefit of just seeing what people are eating all the time.
1: Yeah. 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 I've definitely looked at the hashtags before and been like, wow, there's so many like beautiful smoothie bowls and you know <laughs> just beautiful plates of food, but there's so much more to recovery and to living a, a full colorful life than food. Right. That yeah. is huge, but there's so many other huge things in there as well.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, and like you said, it's individual, maybe that does help people it's just a matter of you know if the people that are listening it's just really like you said getting honest with yourself is this is this helping my recovery or is this is this keeping me one foot with my eating disorder you know am i fascinated by looking at what other people are eating because it's motivating me to try new foods or is it for the sake of comparison you know just having to i think a lot of recovery is having to get honest with yourself and that's hard because your eating disorder the eating disorder side of you is telling you that honesty is one thing. And then the recovery side of you is telling you that honesty is something else, but, um, just using social media wisely. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yes. Um, so I want to move into you. So obviously now you're, um, even though you originally weren't intending on doing clinical stuff, you're a clinical psychologist, right? Yes. And, you had mentioned in your story that when you felt ready, you started to like see eating disorder clients and you, you spoke about, you know, people who have been through something and then they want to go back and help and they run into the fire with buckets of water. Um, and that's something that I definitely personally, you know, what I do now is definitely from that desire of being able to help other people through what I've been through. Um, and I think that that's true for a lot of people. Like a lot of the people I interview on this podcast are aspiring to be an eating disorder nutritionist or an eating disorder therapist. Um, and at the same time, I think that there's oh, there's a need to do it skillfully. So like I was telling you, when I first got my life coaching certificate, my level one certificate, I tried to be an eating disorder coach and I just was not ready and it wasn't helpful for me and it wasn't helpful for my clients. So I stopped working with people with eating disorders until I felt ready. Um, do you have any uh, advice for people who are in recovery that have the desire to go into the helping professions for other people in recovery? Like what, is it, what does it mean to be ready or like when did you feel ready or um, any other advice that you might have?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that this is a fascinating, fascinating topic that – we, it almost gets very sticky. Like I think people in the eating disorder community, like sort of shy away from talking about this because it does, it gets sticky. um, It's individualized. It brings up the recovered versus recovering debate. um, But it's inevitable. I mean, I believe we need to talk about it because there's some statistics that say 80% of eating disorder professionals have had a history of disordered eating themselves. Mm -hmm. So we need to be talking about, well, what does it look like to be ready to help people? Like, how can we use that to actually help people? Um, And I think that part of the problem is, it seems like people, professionals, have just started getting comfortable, like kind of coming out, so to speak, about having had an eating disorder history, which is, uh, you know, kind of a shame that we are, a profession or we were a profession of mental health professionals kind of trying to destigmatize mental illness while stigmatizing it personally, like on a private level. Right. Um, But again, I think it's, it's very individualized in terms of when a person who has had an eating disorder is ready to give back and help, um, you know, other people with eating disorders. And I think, First of all, defining what help means, because maybe there are probably, there are ways to help that aren't being a therapist, you know, getting your degree or being a dietitian or a life coach. There are definitely ways to uh, like writing and getting involved with advocacy work and more online type stuff, which is probably something people could do in a healthy manner um, while still you know, actively working on their own recovery and still, you know, maybe struggling with eating disorder at some point um, throughout the process. I think that when you're, when you're talking about, you know, when are you ready to be a therapist and sit in the room with somebody else? What's really important to think about is that if you're in the room with another human being, you're all of your, you're there with all of your own thoughts, biases, past history, um, training, like it's all there in the room. So you have to think about it like that and all their, you know, their whole life and personhood is in the room as well. So it's kind of like, well, how, how is your stuff going to interact with their stuff? And do you think that it's going to be in a way that's helpful to that person? Or do you think that your stuff is going to be so, you know, kind of taking up so much of the room, either, Like subconsciously in your mind, or I've heard of therapists like really disclosing a lot and therapy, and the client starting to feel like they had to be therapist. So, is it going to take over the room in any way, or are you going to be able to hold space for that person? Because, um, like I said, I, in terms of me and my role as a psychologist, I take it very seriously that it's about the other person and that. I'm not um, interested in bringing in my own story in any detailed way um, because I don't believe in taking that space from that person. I think part of the healing part of therapy is being in the room with somebody and allowing it to be their time, their space, You know, really uniquely devoted to them and their story. So it's getting honest with yourself about, are you gonna be able to do that? You know, Are you gonna be able to sit with people and not be at the very basic level triggered Right, um, Like, are you going to be able to hear about specific behaviors in detail and sort of in a way that's not clouded by your own thoughts and emotions in the moment, respond appropriately and help? I just think there's, there's a whole saying, we can only take people as far as we've gone. So getting honest with yourself, how far have I gone? You know, and that's a lot of times murky and hard to decipher, but sitting with that and um, trying to be cognizant of it, because it is, it's so true. We can only take people as far as we've gone. So whether you believe in full recovery or not, if your aim is to help people get to a strong place in like living a colorful life, then you essentially have to have done that yourself. Um So I I don't think there's any specific number of years or anything that I can say. This is is the number of years you have to have been in recovery to help other people. But um, I think being in your own therapy would be good data because when you're in therapy and maybe you've been in therapy for a while, if you have the privilege of being able to go to therapy that is, Becoming aware of when it stops, sort of, it stopped being about the eating disorder and food and weight and you've gotten to more like root things and you've, you're using therapy on this like very deep level and you're no longer actively struggling with behaviors. I mean, that's key at the basic level. You really have to, I don't think you can be an effective eating disorder clinician or dietitian if you're actively struggling with using behaviors in your own life. Because um, another thing that happens is we, human beings, we really connect with when somebody's genuine and authentic. So if you are saying something in the room, but then doing something on the side, that's going to be in the room. I don't care like how good you are at sort of covering up, it's going to be in the room. And it's going to take away from that genuine, authentic vibe, (laughs) for for lack of like a clinical term, it's going to take away from that. So of course being sure that you're not engaging in behaviors, but then also, um, you know, how are you doing in your own life, and your own therapy? And does it seem like you've progressed far enough along that you are ready to give back in that way? And it's super individualized. I wish I had like a more, this is the answer. (laughs) Like I have discovered it. It's three years and 50 therapy sessions and, this is the equation to being ready. Um, But again, it's going back to that gray area, super gray area, super individualized. I think being aware of it is obviously huge. And if you're asking yourself these questions, like, am I ready? Um, Are my own, is my own stuff going to get in the way? Am I, do I have any lingering biases about like body size or fat phobia? Um, That's already an indication that you're going in the right direction because you're, being, you know, you have that insight to be aware and ask yourself those questions.
0: Yeah, I think two things that you said in particular, um, one of them, I don't know if you really just mentioned it now, but in your story, you kept talking about um, just like being able to be empathetic and how your, your history with an eating disorder allowed you to be able to be empathetic. And I remember when I was first starting out as a coach when I actually wasn't ready to work with eating disorder clients um, or not even just as a coach, but I just remember like in my recovery process, it went from like having an eating disorder to being really jealous of people that got to use their behaviors because I wasn't to Mm. then being not jealous, but like annoyed and frustrated that people were using, like there was no empathy. I was just like annoyed to then and eventually it got to empathy, like being able to be empathetic, but also not swept away by it. And like you said, being able to hold space for someone to share their story without you taking up space, whether it's verbally or energetically with your own story and your own stuff, um, I think is important. And I think that you know in the coaching program that i did the i did a level one certification and then i'm almost done with carolyn coston's eating disorder specific coach training mm-hmm. and she talks about and a coaching is a little bit different than therapy in this way but that as a coach you only share first of all things that are going to be helpful to your client but no matter what you've got to show up knowing that this person's eating disorder is different than yours was mm-hmm. and just because one thing worked for you or this thing you did this and it helped you. I mean, you can't let your past cloud the way that you are showing up for the individual. And I think until you're able to get to that point, um, there's still maybe more digging to be done on your end.
1: Right. And something you said, it kind of reminds me of um, another belief that I have about when you're ready that I know this sounds kind of weird, but when you're at the point where you're like less interested in your the struggle part of your story and maybe like less um, passionate about even sharing it and you're at the point where you're just um, really like living a lot of the time in the moment and very future focused, I kind of think that tends to be a really great indicator that there's been a lot of healing that's happened. Um, and like I've had people tell me, you know, I'm, I'm just finding myself like bored with, the, um, with all the reading about eating disorders and listening to like the podcast and engaging the online community. Like I'm almost feeling like I'm ready to um, not do as much of that and start doing like filling my time with other things. I think for some people that can be a really great indication of being ready to then help another person like work through that, you know, the fire
0: and get to the other side. Definitely. I think I, I say this to my clients sometimes that like you like in terms of resources, like often we give resources that are specifically recovery related, but sometimes it'll benefit you to read a book that's not just about recovery. Yes. You know, and, and it could still be like, a, I mean, it might just be like a fiction book, like go get lost in the Hunger Games, but it could also be like um It could still be like a self-help book, but it doesn't always need to be eating disorder specific because you might learn something so much more than, you know, it's just, I I think it like broadens the scope of what you could potentially learn and what could potentially help you than always just being like, what about this recovery book? And what about this recovery book? Um, So I think it's just, it's hard to get out of the eating disorder world if all you're doing is reading and doing everything that is in the eating disorder world.
1: Right, like some, some sometimes I think it can be a way of sort of subconsciously keeping one foot in the eating disorder, as odd as that sounds. Um, And I think being really careful about for therapist, dietitian, non-therapist, just everybody being really careful about not um, falling into the trap of having your struggle and your trauma be your entire story and kind of staying stuck there. um, Because that's That's a difficult place to be in terms of moving forward if that is what you're um, focusing on all the time, not having that become your identity, Um, Mm -hmm. owning it, healing and moving forward and not um, saying it didn't happen, but just making sure that it's not your identity.
0: Right. My, uh, my teacher talks about just recycling your past. So it's like you take what you've been through, but you also like recycle it and now it becomes something completely new. So it might even be like unrecognizable because it was a plastic water bottle and now it's, I don't know, a bracelet. Um, but it's being able to take the shit from your past and like actually make it something that's going to help propel you into the future rather than something that actually keeps you just stuck in the past, even if you're functioning relatively well in the present.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. I love that metaphor.
0: So let's move on to, I'm going to muddy this up so badly, but I was telling you about, I read a book. I don't know what it was called. I have to find it. I have to, I will find it. I just need to look for it on Google. Um, And I, I read it a while ago and it was written by the person that wrote it. I think she was a psychic or like a medium or something like that. So there's not a lot of like hard science base around this book, but she was talking about how souls come to earth from a different plane. And again, I'm going to muddy. There's a lot more. It's a big book. I just giving you the total basis of it. Um, Souls come to earth from a different plane and the souls that wind up on earth have chosen to come to earth. And they knew before they come here, the exact life that they'd be living. So before they came to earth, they knew they'd be raised in a certain family. They'd have certain traumas. Maybe they'd have an eating disorder. They might suffer certain losses. They also might have great successes. Um, so they knew this before they decided to come to earth. Once they came to earth, they don't have any memory of knowing that ahead of time, but um, But they made the decision to come to earth despite everything that they'd have to live through for a specific reason. Like there was a reason that they were like, nope, I'm going to go live there even though I'm going to have a lot of trauma or a lot of struggles because there's a higher purpose for me being there. Um, And again, there's a lot more to it. But I remember reading that and it becoming like a very deep inquiry for me of like, okay, if I knew before I came to the planet earth as like showing up as Kristen Brunello in this world and I knew before I came here that I was going to go through these things and have an eating disorder and like have a lot of difficulty in my life until I was about 22, if I knew all of that and I still decided to come here anyway because there was a higher purpose for me being here, like what would be my purpose for being here? Why would I have chosen to be going through all of that um, and I wish I knew the book because I there's probably a much more eloquent way to say that um, but for me it I, I really enjoy like perspective shifts because I think people get really stuck in the same views over and over and over and that can be for your sickness but that can also be for your recovery and for me to be able to be like hey okay, if I came here and chose to live the life that I've lived up until this point because there was a reason, what would my reason be? And, you know, now I I really enjoy my life. Now I think I live a good life. But for me, when I first read that, I, I was not like where I am now. I was still pretty, I don't know that I was using eating disorder symptoms, but I was still super depressed and it was able to break me out a little bit of um, seeing the bigger picture. And I guess I'm curious for you. And obviously it's total speculation because I'm not even describing the book well, let alone what science is behind this book. But if you can think of, like, if you chose to come to this earth and live the life that you've lived because there was a higher purpose, what do you make that higher purpose up to be?
1: Um, Well, first of all, I think that the whole concept of souls sort of choosing their journeys for a reason and then coming to earth is... um, like it almost just hearing it makes me like take a deep breath. Like, okay, that's uh, very comforting, you know, because it just, and I think it could be used for everyone for the rest. Of, I mean, not just for recovery, but for the rest of everybody's lives, because there's always going to be, you know, different types of struggles. And pe- if you're going to live life, you're going to feel immense pain over and over. Um, and also immense joy. And you're gonna feel it all. Like I think Glennon Doyle calls it brutal, like brutal and beautiful all the time. Um, But using this idea of like, well, what if I was, I chose all of this, you know, before I came here for a reason, I think that's just very comforting. Like there's something about that that gives me chills. Um, In terms of how I would apply that, I think, like I said, when I was sharing my story, I consider having the eating disorder to be—I um, wouldn't ever wish an eating disorder on anyone, obviously—but I'm sort of thankful at this point because I consider it to be my soul training. Like, I—I do think, I think no two eating disorders are alike, and it is a, a really um, dangerous idea to say that I understand eating disorders because I've had one. But I think at the most soul-like base root level, having gone through it, gives me the empathy and this foundation of, um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously never gonna be the person that says just eat, like thank goodness. Um, fire me as a therapist if I ever say that. But um, like a foundation of empathy for how um, nonsensical the disorder can seem and just for the, for how painful the experience is. Um, which is important with eating disorders because I do feel like they're sort of made fun of in our society and um, sometimes considered like fluff illnesses. And I think if you've gone through it, you will never think of it like that again. Um, So I I do think that that if I had a higher purpose, one of them, I'd hope that I would have various purposes that I've chosen, but I think one of them is to give back and to help people to get to the other side of the fire, too, and to hopefully instill hope um, that it's possible. Because when I was going through recovery, I want—I think I would have benefited from more people saying, I don't know if, if they would have needed to say, like, fully recovered to instill hope, but more people saying, like, no, like, it gets better. Like, you will not be dealing with these thoughts in this um totally crushing awful manner on and off for the rest of your life like that is not how it has to go um so i think instilling hope that that it does get better and that life can be um really colorful is part of my higher purpose and then just helping other people
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i love i think that like sometimes people when they think about like what their higher purpose is, it sounds like a very like big idea and they, and they think it it's like almost like a destiny thing. And I, what I like about the way of conceptualizing it this way, like it was your choice to be here and live this life. Is it because it, it puts the control of what your higher purpose is back in your hands. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things I like about the Viktor Frankl quote. Um, like if you're going to find meaning in life at all, you need to find meaning in your suffering Um but you get to make up what that meaning is, right? So like you've lived your life and there might be someone that obviously has not lived the exact same life that you, but maybe has had similar experience to you and they might decide like the reason is something completely different than what you've decided your reason is. And it doesn't really matter what it is as long as um, it fills, I guess like it just fills you up with, with purpose, you know, like I think everybody's purpose is different. It's just a matter of what what motivates you to keep moving forward. Um, but yeah, it, it's just a concept that I, I I think back to sometimes.
1: Yeah, I absolutely love it. Like I said, it makes me like take that deep breath and think mm-hmm. like because I also think in terms of higher like purposes, I think that we all probably have many many of them. Like instead of just one big one. So I think it's a way to to give meaning and find meaning in all sorts of struggles that will inevitably happen if you live life. So I, yeah, I love that concept. Oh, I'm so glad you brought it up.
0: Yeah, I'll find the book and I'll let you know. And I'll also put it in the ep- episode notes. I just need to, I'm having a mind blank on what the author's name was. I have like little, I think it started with a D, but that doesn't get me very far, um, but yeah, and, and that goes to say like what you we were just talking about of like sometimes you just need to read things that aren't only recovery related because that was not a recovery related book, um, and it also expanded my view of like okay what could what could the reason be for this? Um, so the last thing that I want to talk to you a little bit about is as you went through your studies and now that you've been a, a clinical psychologist for a while in the eating disorder field. Um, I'm wondering what are some things that maybe you've picked up along the way that um, you now use in your practice. Like I know when I see your posts on Instagram, like there's a lot of health at every size um, related stuff. And so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more to that. And then also if there's just anything else that you also, um, because the eating disorder field's always developing and like new things are being created and new things are being learned. Um, So what are some things that you use now that maybe you didn't always use or you didn't even use in your own recovery? But as a clinical psychologist, do you find helpful for people in recovery?
1: Um, Definitely, definitely health at every size. And I didn't have access to that concept during my own recovery and also early on in like graduate school. Um, Health at every size was not something that I learned about in any academic setting. It was only when I was already sort of getting started with my career and have been doing it for a little while that I stumbled upon, oh, it must have been an article or a blog post or something online that um, really like spiked my interest. Well, first of all, just the the health at every size, like the name of that got me interested. Um, And then this, the concept as it was explained to me at first was that like not saying that every human being is healthy at every single size, but um, it's really time that we look critically at the way we're defining health and um, striving for health and how we're we're including weight so much in that and how it's not working, right? It's not like a, it's it hasn't been a valid way of defining health. So really saying that every human being has the right to pursue health in a weight neutral manner And when I, when I like ordered the book, Linda Bacon's book, and really started um, researching it, it just all kind of clicked in. And suddenly it made the work that I was doing with people a lot more, it just felt better. Like there wasn't that, a lot of times I had this like almost icky feeling of, well, I'm teaching this person these skills and I'm trying to help them like reject these thoughts while also understanding that a lot of it has like a basis in our culture and societal messages. So um like how do we, you know, heal people and then send them out into the world when this is the message if we're not also calling out the message and then talking back against it. So when I finally, you know, health at every size sort of it clicked into place like the well the message is wrong. Like it's fundamentally wrong and it's come from You know, different companies in the food industry and um, people that had that stood to make a lot of money off of creating uh, a real fear of fatness in our culture. Um, And it's just not held up by research. So I think that it's the like I call it the MVP of eating disorder recovery. Like, finally, it's really hard to help somebody recover if you're not also saying, Oh, and by the way, like, this is the culture that we live in. And this is how um, we're calling it out because it is, it's based on these falsehoods and, um, and yeah, and continuing along in that way and more of a weight neutral approach. And I think previously eating disorder treatment had a lot of, and unfortunately because of managed care, it still does like a lot to do with things like BMI and weight ceilings and weight floors. Um, And so I think, a lot of times we ended up colluding with the eating disorder voice by I've heard of um, past dietitians telling people not to that. They had like a set point weight and they didn't want them to go past that set point weight, um, which is totally colluding with the eating disorder voice. I've also heard of therapists maybe saying like, don't worry, I won't let you get fat. So it's kind of like, well, if you really sit and think deeply about that, how are we going to help people recover from something while also saying, but by the way, fear the very thing that you're fearing, like keep fearing it, but um, you know, get better. Like that just doesn't, that, that doesn't click into place. Like that doesn't make sense. So learning about health at every size was huge. And I use a weight neutral health at every size approach with everybody that I work with. And I also strongly believe in um, just social justice work around these issues and getting out there and advocating in whatever ways that we can, because, um, I think the more, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And then it becomes like maddening, like, Oh, well, I have to do something. Like I can't just sit in this culture and just, you know, not address and not call out this, the fat phobia that's all around me. And that is really, you know killing people at the end of the day because the research shows that wheat stigma harms people's health far more than any um, you know bmi number ever will so yeah in terms of your question that was a very long-winded answer but health at every size was definitely a game changer as i moved forward in my
0: practice I think that what I like that you just said is like once you see it, you can't unsee it Mm -hmm. Um, because I remember when I first started my coaching, like specifically for people with eating disorders. And this is, was absolutely my own ignorance, but I just, there was a lot of um, inequalities in the eating disorder recovery field that I just like was not even aware of. Mm -hmm. And then the moment I, it was brought to my attention like you said, it's like I can't not see it anymore when I read things, even if they're, like, specifically – they might be recovery-related things, but they're written in a way that totally negates large parts of the recovery population. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, like you said, that this is just it's, – it's a very refreshing – to me it feels very refreshing in terms of eating disorder treatment of – taking the number because I remember when I was in treatment, like I don't think health at every size was around yet either. And it was so numbers based and, and because of that people either weren't getting the care that they needed or they were being forced to leave treatment, even though they still needed more care and um, insurance companies were saying yes and no to people based on like entirely ridiculous treatment standards. Um, So I really appreciate health at every size and then also just people like you who are really working on promoting it and then also just the social justice side of the eating disorder treatment field because I think that it feels to me like the eating disorder treatment field right now is in a very pivotal like change point like I see a lot of changes happening um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people like yourself and other people that I have been in contact with and know that are really taking charge of like the direction that treatment is going to be going to in the future, which is different than it has been in the past. Like I feel like right now I'm seeing this like change point happening.
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Which I
0: think super, I think it's like so exciting and uh, so necessary.
1: Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's like a breath of fresh air. Like you said that it's almost once you see it and then start, doing the work, it's like, okay, I can't unsee it. And it's also makes a lot of things, other things make sense that Mm -hmm. um, like we as a field, we focus, there's, uh, I don't know what the statistic is, I can't remember, but the the majority of our research is on anorexia when that's not, um, the most common eating disorder, that's actually one of the more uncommon eating disorders. So right. why are we focusing so much on it? Why is there a stereotype that only young, um, small Caucasian females get eating disorders? Well, if you look at it from the social justice lens, our research comes from inpatient treatment facilities because that was that's just the, um, a convenient place to get people from. So the research comes from these places that um, managed care accepts, and that a lot of times, um, doctors and family members and people have noticed that the person's struggling. um, When there's all these other people that, because of fat phobia or specific stereotypes, just fly under the radar and go unnoticed, but are struggling immensely, like it's not because these are the only people who have eating disorders or eating disorders that are really um, severe, it's because we are um, blind as a society or at least we have been up until you know very recently maybe when like you said it started to shift a little bit but we've been really blind and biased and um yeah so it's it it almost it feels enlightening like okay well that makes sense because before it was a big mystery you know like why are these the only people that get eating disorders well that because that's actually totally false and Mm -hmm.
0: it's just we, we, do, we weren't seeing things clearly before. And I also think that one of the things that is happening now is like eating disorder research is still like a relatively new field. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that are in the treatment field now are people that were suffering from eating disorders when the treatment field was still like, what is your ideal body weight? And do you have your period? And like very like medicinal. Mm-hmm. Um And, and we know what it's like to have to recover in that. And so now that a bunch of people like you and I that have been through treatment and are on the other side of their eating disorder are now in the position to be able to help other people recover. I think that it makes sense that there's now voices like, okay, when I was in recovery, that did not make sense. Mm -hmm. Like it did not make sense to me that you could go inpatient treatment and then three days later have to be kicked out because your weight went up a tiny little bit and suddenly you don't qualify to have an eating disorder anymore. Like in three days that something happened and suddenly you're better just because of that. Um, And I I think that might be one of the reasons why I just think there's a lot of powerful voices right now in the eating disorder recovery field saying like there is a different way because the way that it's been is not working. Um, Yeah.
1: I haven't thought of it like that, but that's so true. And like there are there's so many things that just didn't make sense, like the body tracing. Yeah. What is that about? (laughs) How does that in any dimension or world makes sense? You know, like, oh, don't worry, you're not as big as your mind is telling you that, but you know,
0: right. And I think because it was like so it was only clinical and that's where there's such, I think a beauty in having people that have been in recovery now being the clinicians, because it's like, I mean, maybe on a purely like textbooks thing. I don't like, I don't know who came up with body tracing, but like at some point someone was like, this is a good idea, but they probably never had to actually body trace and like, be like, what the hell am I actually doing right now? Like, this is not helping me at all. Yeah. Um, and, and now, you know, there are people that are in the treatment field that can speak to that. Like when I was in treatment, that did nothing. Or when I was in treatment, the fact that I had to call a doctor every three days and fight to stay there because my weight had gone up or I, just so many things that just made no sense that now we're able to um, speak from a more informed place. And now, like you had said earlier in, in this conversation, that there's a lot more people in the treatment field that are willing to self-disclose a little bit more about their own history Um, so i think it's really inspiring and um, i'm really grateful that you're one of the voices out there that is kind of pushing the treatment field in that direction thank you so much for listening today the homework for today is to clean up your social media feeds Are you following people and accounts that actually serve your recovery? Or are you following accounts that keep you at least partly stuck in your eating disorder? What are you allowing into your field? How can you ease your nervous system by only allowing in things that are helpful? You have the power and the responsibility to create that boundary for yourself. For more support, check out my website alwaysabeing.com and while you're there, take my free eating disorder archetype recovery quiz or sign up for my Accept Recovery eight-day e-course. As a reminder, you get the first two days of that course for free and if you decide to continue, it is pay what you can afford. As always, I want to hear from you. Email me at Kristen at alwaysabeing.com that's K-R-I-S-T-E-N at alwaysabeing.com If you are well into your recovery, or if you are recovered, to be interviewed on the podcast. Also a reminder that if this episode resonated with you or if you think the concept of this podcast is a good one, please help other people find it more easily by rating it on iTunes, maybe leaving a comment, or sharing it with other people who might also find it helpful.